Thanks, Camden. Well, brothers, it's great to uh, see you all here, uh, this, this large company. Uh, now that our bellies are full of carbohydrates, it should be really easy to stay awake as we try to cover uh, some of this material. But I just want to start off with a word of prayer, and then I've got a couple texts I want to read. Would you pray with me now? Holy Triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we come before you, and we want to praise you and thank you for your great grace toward us. Father, we ask that in these next few moments, by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would help us to see even the glory of Jesus Christ, even in his salvation toward a sinful man, even the Apostle Paul, how even the Lord Jesus took him and transformed him to use him, even as, even as even your own sword bearer. So, Father, we pray that you would make us attentive, but not just mentally attentive. We pray that our hearts, our very souls, would be open to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Two texts, Matthew chapter 26. Verse 52, you should have it maybe on the handout. Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. So obviously talking about the physical violence which Peter at the time was going to take up in defense of Jesus. And then Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 17 Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Well, in, the, in, in all the old movies, uh, when they would tell stories about the Bible, they would call them sword and sandal epics. You know, as we've come to... We're all here, and we're looking at Men of the Bible, this great series that Gavin has come up with. I think we're all wanting to discover a man's man. You know, we want to emulate a man's man. That's why you're here. We want to be Charlton Heston in Ben-Hur, you know, or be that UFC fighter fighting the Amalekites, you know, that kind of thing. Now, I've chosen a man whom... He's been described in, or portrayed, I should say, in Christian art, always portrayed with a sword. A sword in his hand, a sword at his waist, a sword even over in the corner of his study. If you look at the paintings of the Apostle Paul by Rembrandt, or Caravaggio, or El Greco, most of you don't know who those names are unless you've got kids here that are homeschooled. They know what they are. You don't. Public school education, right? You don't know anything. But if we even look back even to the crudest art of the, of the first century, first, second century, the early church, you wouldn't see a hero. What you would see is a balding little man with a comb over. He was very unimpressive in his physical appearance. And yet this tough little man was a man's man. He was a weak man made strong, very strong by God. And he was truly, I will describe him as, God's own sword bearer. God's own sword bearer. And that's the title of my message. So we're going to look at this weak man made strong and we're going to look at it kind of in three phases. You have it in your little handout there. Three phases of this sword bearing. First, the sword in the wrong hands. And secondly, the sword of the word. And thirdly, the sword bearer's quest. So this should stimulate all of your Lord of the Rings kind of nerding out kind of a, a mentality here as we think in these medieval terms. 
looking at, I've got a couple nods here, that's good, looking at even Paul in these terms. Well, first, considering Paul and the sword in the wrong hands. Well, Paul was a Jew, a Jew from Tarsus, which is in southern Turkey. He came from a very wealthy family, even being a full citizen of the city of Rome, so which, which is very odd because he's a Jew. And this was not by purchase, but by birth, as you know from Acts 16. His trade, we're told, is a tent maker. Uh, you, you maybe know that, Acts 18. But this doesn't really uh, clarify how a man from a wealthy family came to be making camping equipment. How, how did, that doesn't seem to fit. Well, as my, my former professor, Dr. Michael Haken, used to say, the Romans in the ancient world didn't go out camping. You know, they just didn't, not like you might. So the only tents that were made would be made for who? Who do you think? Travelers or the military. The military. Yeah. So you can imagine then a wealthy Jewish family that's in the business of supplying the military of Rome. It's basically what we might call a defense contractor. Right? You know, those, those lovely people that we admire. You know. And Saul, as he was known, is then the special son of that family. Now, he is a son of privilege and status, and otherwise, you think, how is it that Paul knew all of these Roman-appointed heads of state? He knew and was friends with, in Acts chapter 19, these men called the Asiarchs. These were appointed by Rome as heads of these different regions, and Paul didn't just know them. He wasn't just acquaintances with them. He was friends with them. How is that possible? So this guy's kind of like what we might call a young prince. And so he was sent off to study with the best teacher of Judaism of the day, Gamaliel, the Pharisee of Pharisees. Actually, Johnny Cash, he wrote a a song about the Apostle Paul and wrote a book about the Apostle Paul. That's why I love Johnny Cash. I mean, you just can't get enough of Johnny Cash. So his book and his song is called The Man in White. And he said of Paul, I was a Pharisee. I could quote from memory the Holy Torah. That was one of the lines in Johnny Cash's song. And that's, so here, this is how Paul developed. Of course, he was Saul of Tarsus back then. Saul, who had tasted the power of Rome, was being raised up to be a power player. He's going to be a power player in the politics and society of Judah. No wonder he was involved and then oversaw the death of Stephen, the very first Christian martyr in Acts chapter 7. So Saul rose then to be the very official inquisitor of Judaism in Acts chapter 8. He was the one who persecuted the early Christians. It wasn't the Romans, note this, it wasn't the Romans who were doing it. It was a Jew against Jews in this case. It's a remarkable thing. It was kind of like almost internal persecution. There's a lesson for us. So Saul was a zealot for the regime, for the Pharisees' high place in the the Roman world. And for him and for the Pharisees, no Christian heresy would be tolerated. So Saul showed that he was a man of blood. He might not have been very physically imposing, I don't think he was, but he clearly had what was more dangerous than physical strength, and we all know this. He had a killer instinct. He had a killer instinct. Now consider the opposition of Saul to the early church. You can look at it there in Acts chapter 8. Just go there. I mean, this is 
This is going to be Bible baseball, and so you might not look up all of these, but I'm just going to note a few of these passages when we go. Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8 and verse 1, and Saul approved of his execution. That's referring to chapter 7 and the martyrdom of Stephen. Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul... Note this, Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now, I don't want to dwell too much on it, but it doesn't take a whole lot of imagination to think about Saul's actions as resembling very much what Hamas just did in southern Israel on the October 7th attacks, ravaging the church. So this is this, is this guy. We have, to, we have to see what kind of guy he really was. <clears throat> so in the earliest stages of the church's infancy, you can consider, Saul was the razor's edge of resistance to cut down the advance of the gospel. Here is the early church wanting to get the message out, and there is Saul ready to cut it out at the root. That's what Saul was. His Judaism had literally been captured by Satan. And what's God going to do when somebody is resisting the gospel? He offers mercy for sure. But if there is resistance to the gospel, then in the words of Johnny Cash, we can all say, tell him that God's going to cut him down. And so that's what we could expect. Now, if we would have known Saul then, he would be then the most... He would have been the most unlikely candidate to be convinced of this Christianity, this, this slave's religion, this heresy to Judaism. The idea of a crucified Messiah was a contradiction in terms, one of the scholars said. It's a, it doesn't, they, crucified and Messiah don't go together in Judaism. Saul would never join in with these traitors to Zionist nationalism. They're traitors. But God. But God. God intervened. Turn over to Acts chapter 9. You know it. On the Damascus road, God spoke to Paul, even the Lord Jesus Christ. Spoke to Paul, verse 4. <clears throat> he says, Saul, Saul... Why are you persecuting me? His opposition was not just geopolitical. His opposition was spiritual and against the very Lord Jesus Christ. Who are you, Lord? Remarkable comment. He said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. That is who Saul was against. He was against Jesus. You know, Caravaggio, the, the painter, he pictures then Paul struck down and he's upside down, looking upward, blinded, under this paint horse that he's fallen off of. And that's the moment. Specifically, the Lord Jesus appeared to Paul, and in that moment, Saul became Paul, the terrorist became the convert, the killer became the preacher. I would argue that that moment was the most important event, other than the resurrection of our Lord. It is the most important event in the history of the world. But if you want to dispute it, 
Think of a better one. It has shaped our entire world. That moment. The world, this world, would never be the same again. It can't be. It takes the man so unlikely and makes him into an apostle that is unprecedented. Now, it's interesting. Paul didn't immediately go from this Israeli generalship to then Christian statesmanship. Like, just, it's not like we do, you know what happens when somebody who's famous, when they become a Christian, what we do with them? We immediately put them into leadership and they are all brutal because they don't know anything. Take some football player or hockey player or movie star and they say, oh yeah, I'm I'm a Christian now. And then we parade them around and have them speak to people as if they're a preacher and they know something. They don't know anything. Not the case with Paul. Paul was much more like David. You remember David when he was anointed as king? And then he had to go back to the obscurity of the sheepfold. He had to to go back and stink with the sheep for a long time before he was actually elevated. Even our Lord Jesus. He was prophesied as the Messiah, and yet he lived, you know, 30 years in obscurity. You know, this is not then the Hollywood script for who you would think would be the hero of the story. So Paul was in Arabia and in Damascus for three years, according to Galatians chapter 1, verse 18. And then he was 14 years, we're told in Galatians 1, 14 years preaching to these non-Jews throughout southern Turkey, in Syria, which is, you know, well, Syria is kind of north of Israel, and in Cilicia, which is, again, in Turkey. So he's going, he's basically in the sticks. He's just, it's totally obscure. He's in the sticks. And then it was during that time, we could say, that Paul really took up God's sword. He took up the Bible. His reputation, of course, preceded him, for people heard in Galatians 1. He used to persecute us, the one who used to persecute us, is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. It's an amazing thing, then, that 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 is what God did to this man. He used to, he is now. He used to, he is now. That is the story of Christian conversion. From the physical sword in his hand to the sword of the Spirit. From resistance to allegiance. Now, at this point, at this point, I, I, just in this room, I do have to ask, where are you at on that? It's not a continuum. It's that razor's edge. Are you in the used to or in the now? Are you before or after that equation? Are you belonging to this world and to Satan and to yourself and doing all that? Or... Have you finally given in and surrendered yourself to Jesus Christ and belong to Him and will follow Him no matter what? You know, I mean, somebody might have invited you and you're, you know, you're, you're investigating it. You're curious. You like the guy who brought you and you like, you know, maybe agree on some stuff, agree on the politics, whatever. But if you are in that before and not the after, God's going to cut you down unless you flee to Him for mercy. See, God, think of it. God was able to make, I'll call it, a Jewish Osama bin Laden into a Christian Charles Spurgeon, William Carey, and John Calvin wrapped up in one. It's amazing. It's amazing. All the terror that Paul could have done, he could have cut the church out at the roots when he was Saul, and God just intervened and stopped him. Sometimes we don't actually believe that God's able to do that. I don't know about you, but I'm very concerned with what's happening in our country. 
And I think it can be so dark and so bad, and it's always going to be like this, and I can be as bad of a doomer as anybody. And yet, if God can save this Jewish Osama bin Laden, I guess, I guess he could actually bring revival to Canada. And there'd be, you know, we'd have to have, you know, more of these. We'd have to rent the saddle dome to have the men's breakfast. Right? And we laugh because it seems absurd. But God could do that in a moment, and then things would turn on a dime. But do we believe that? So the sword had been in the wrong hands before. But what about after? Well, let's look at this sword of the Lord. Paul believed what he said to Timothy over in 2 Timothy chapter 4, in verses 1 to 8, when he said, very famously, every, every preacher knows this, he said, preach your feelings. No. Preach your stand-up comedy? No. Preach your political opinions? No. Preach the word. Preach the word. Preach it. Verse 2, be ready in season and out of season. Rebu reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching but will have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Why does Paul say this? Because Paul believed it and he lived it. He actually fought the good fight. He was poured out for Christ's noble cause. And how did he do this? How did he do this? He did it with the Word. He did it with the Word. And I think in this room, we're all kind of Bible guys, so maybe this, maybe this seems like, oh yes, well, of course I know this. But when he says to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 10, 4, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. That is the kind of power of this sword. You know the phrase, take no prisoners. Well, that, that's Paul's thought. The false thought or rebel lust or the heretical doctrine that Paul didn't wipe out had to be submitted captive to obey Christ. Otherwise, he took no prisoners. You either submit or I'm going to cut you down with the sword of the word. Of course, Paul said in Philippians 2, 10, 11, every knee, every knee, not some knees, not half the knees, not a remnant of knees, every knee will bow, promise, will, will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen, indeed. If you won't bow in service of heaven, you will bow in the shackles of hell. It's one or the other. If you won't bow willingly, then you get the ball-peen hammer to the kneecaps. Maybe that's a little extreme, I don't know. But, but that's, you, there's none of this C.S. Lewis where, oh well, you just have the absence of God. God kind of lets you let you have your rebellion yourself over there in the corner. No, no, every knee will bow. You don't retain your proud rebellion as if you got away with it. And so Paul became God's shock trooper. Like an army ranger, an advanced scout, he's establishing beachheads 
he truly believed, and what we had at the beginning, Ephesians 6, 17, that the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. See, the, the trouble is, I know, if you're like me, this is just, it's a lot of information. And we put this in the category of information. And then we got, right, we got one of these, and it's got a lot of information constantly. And all this is is just one more bit of information. And we don't treat it, you know, we don't treat it as the very sword of the Spirit. And our lack of reverence for the Word and understanding of what the Word of God is, our lack of understanding of that is then why then we, we start looking for power in other places. Because we might go to a Bible church, but we, we, have the, we view the Bible as, well, this is my Sunday morning information dump that I receive, rather than this is then the supernatural power of God to do transformative work in my life and in anybody's lives who comes within its hearing. If we also consider Paul as the author of the Hebrews, which is likely... Then his description is all the more fitting in Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and active. Not like your phone. It's living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing into the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This is the problem even amongst conservative Christians. They've lost confidence in the power of the word to cut even to the point of thoughts and intentions of the heart, the most secret of secrets. And it cuts through. It gets at them. The word is a sword that cuts to the heart. You know, it's interesting I just wonder, this is my speculation, but maybe Paul, maybe Paul had known the sword's power because he felt it even before he was converted. When the Sanhedrin, we are told, when they heard that godly man Stephen preach, we are told in Acts 7.54, the King James is the most literal here, and it's actually a better translation than the other ones. It says, they were cut to the heart, literally. Was Paul, Saul at that time, was he cut to the heart? But because he was not a believer, he was enraged and he improved of all of this murder of Stephen and then the ravaging of the church. See, the word divides. You either go one way or the other. People will, I, I, you know, we tell people when they come to our church, you can keep coming, but if you are not saved, this is actually heaping more and more direct condemnation upon you. How can, I, I, it boggles my mind how guys can come and hear the word and hear judgment upon themselves and keep coming and playing church. What a terrifying, dangerous thing to do. But that's the power of the word. That is the power of the Word, and I hope that we're kind of grasping that again as Bible guys, which I assume most of you are, come from Bible churches. Yeah, but all of us, myself included, I'm not just talking about you, I'm talking about myself. The spirit of the age is such that it makes us denigrate the spiritual power and the slicing power of the Word of God. But that brings us then to the sword-bearer's quest. Paul wielded this sword in warfare on this mission from God. But before he got out to this outer mission that he was to be on, this outer quest, he had to work inside. Turn over to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. 
you can come at me after on your view of Romans 7, but if it's not my view, you're wrong. <laughs> I believe that Paul in Romans 7 is talking about the inner warfare of a very godly man who is extremely sensitive to his sin. And if you look there in verse 11, let's start in verse 10, the very commandment, speaking of the law and the goodness of the law, but the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. So talking about the Word of God, you could say, for sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment. So it's as if sin is taking the commandment, the Word of God, the law of God, and sin's going to take that sword, and then it deceived him. He said, through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. He says, so the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. He says, did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. He doesn't, it's not the sword. It's the one who wielded the sword. Uh, just to say, guns don't kill people, people kill people, right? It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. You see, then this is, this is then the law, sin using the law through the law. It killed me. I'm not going to unpack all of Romans 7, but then, then this, the point is that there is then this battle regarding how then sin uses the law. And Paul had to fight that battle. He said, verse 20, Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. See, he's aware that there is this internal battle where the law applied sin taking the law and cutting him down, but he's also got to take the word and then fight off that sin. He says, verse 21, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. He didn't do that when he was Saul. Not in, not in the true way. He didn't delight in the law of God. He delights in the law of God properly as it points to Jesus Christ. I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members, verse 23, another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. You've been feeling like you've been waging war this week? If you aren't feeling the, the heat of that battle inside you, then maybe it's because you're a non-combatant. You're already belonging to Satan's team. He doesn't, he doesn't need to worry about you. But if you are fighting this internal battle, that is meaning you're taking the Word of God and fighting sin. Because sin is after you. He says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Ah, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So that I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. It's remarkable, this inner warfare. And that's what the point I want to make. Paul, in his quest, starts with the inner warfare. We know, of course, that by this sword word, the gospel, because of that, because the, the declaration of God in Christ for those who believe in Jesus Christ, that those who believe are then declared righteous in Him, that their sins are forgiven by the atonement of Jesus. By that sword word, by the gospel, Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It is a fact. It is a sword thrust to any false lie, any false thought that would come into your mind that said, oh, I'm condemned, or I'm on a performance 
I'm on a performance review here with God as a Christian. You're not on a performance review. Christ fulfilled the performance review. You just get the gravy. It's, you're accepted. No condemnation for you. And that's what was the case with Paul. Paul, even in that description, he could say over in verse 12, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. This is then the thought of being adopted into a royal family. This is high chivalry here. This is, this is you being brought from being an enemy to being brought into the court of the high God, the high king, and adopted into the family, being an heir. This is what Paul's thinking. The Spirit Himself, verse 16 of Romans 8. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. This is the description of this royal heir. No condemnation. He's heir to the King. It's the privilege of the Christian man. This is one of the things that's happening these days is men, when we get guys together, especially in Christian circles, men get beat up. Men are, oh, you're no good. You're not a good enough husband. You're not a good enough employer, employee. You're not a good enough father. You're not a good, not a good enough church member. But we forget, we forget the great privilege of what it is to be a Christian man. You are an heir of the king. Start acting like it. Hey, I, I belong to him. I have this privilege and status. It's not, it's not an arrogance. It's the right confidence in our status. I am the son of the nobility, even of the Lord King. I am a son of God, and I'm a co-heir with Christ, my brother. And instead, we get thinking like a maggot. We're just a maggot. Well, no, we're not. I'm, a, I'm an heir, co-heir with Christ. So Paul, Paul is elevating what it means to be a Christian man, what it means to be a Christian, but specifically as a Christian man, and I think, in this case, Paul's very based. Only the young guys laughed. But all the notions of chivalry, all of that, all of it comes from Paul and from Paul's own, we could say, his own sworn loyalty and allegiance to his oath, Lord, even Jesus Christ. He belongs to the king. He's sworn in allegiance, but he's got privileges that's the inward warfare in this quest that the sword bearer takes up. Now, Paul specifically had an outward warfare as well. Paul took his sword, the Word of God. He took it to prison and to Rome. His intent, of course, was to lay the foundation for the church he didn't want to build on another's foundation, as he said in Romans 15, verse 19. He said, from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, which is over in the, in the western Mediterranean, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. Now, all of us have come after that, and we have built on others' foundation, on Paul's foundation, on the specific foundation of the apostles, the unique foundation. 
You only lay a foundation once, but somebody had to lay it. And that's what he did. And so that's why he kept traveling all over the Mediterranean, planting churches. And then, you know, he would go back later. And in Acts 14, Acts 18, this phrase, he would go back and strengthen the disciples. Lay the foundation, then go back and strengthen the disciples. The rest of the New Testament, all of Paul's letters are a function of him strengthening the disciples. That was his quest. He was given these special privileges as, a, as God's sword bearer. He was even allowed to see the mysteries of the third heaven which cannot be uttered. Things so spectacular in 2 Corinthians 12 that they can't even be compassed by speech. God had to humble him, of course, and give him then a thorn in the flesh, a thorn that Paul wanted to be removed. But God said in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, My grace is sufficient for you. Why? For my power is made perfect when you work out more. No. My power is made perfect when you are at your best. No. My power is made perfect in weakness. Paul had every reason to be weak. You know, Paul got beat down. You know what happens when you get together with your buddies? I mean, it's, I've, I've seen this throughout my life. When, when guys get together, you'll always talk about how bad you got hurt. You know, how bad you, you broke something or, you, you, know, how, how, you know, do you want to see my scar? You know... Oh, yeah, I got hospitalized for that. You know, and then you kind of go on and on, and then somebody says, you're an idiot, buddy. You know, why, why are you getting hurt so bad? You know, don't be so stupid. As you get older, of course, then you just talk about all your illnesses and ailments. It's, you don't have any heroic story behind them anymore. <laughs> but in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 21 and following, Paul gives an account of his, let's call it his beat-up list. How, how beat-up he, he got. Whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I'm speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast of that. 2 Corinthians 11, 22, Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. That was the killing sentence. I was supposed to kill him. And he's like, yeah, five times I got it. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Again, if you're stoned, that means you're supposed to be dead. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. You know, think of Louis Zamperini and, you know, being out, you know, unbroken. You've seen that, his story, being adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. In toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? And then he gives this line, verse 30. I must boast. If I must boast, he says, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. See, this is the thing. He was beat down and made weak, but he was also made strong. There's many, many things that he faced to weaken him. But this is really important because as we consider Paul as God's sword bearer, he lived a life where he was all, like you can just imagine, he would always feel weak. I don't care. You go through that list... And you know how long it takes to recover from stuff. You know how long it takes to recover. You know, you get, 
a little sick and it takes you a long time to recover from the man cold, right? You're in a car accident. You have some trouble at work. You wreck your back. You know how long it takes and it immediately makes you feel weak. Paul would have felt weak every day. Every day. There was no faking it, no thinking, oh, well, I'm going to, power of positive thinking, I'm going to act as if I'm really strong. You know, he's this, li he's this little guy that is, that feels pretty weak all the time. He felt weak, but he was made strong. Made strong. Paul, of course, argued this way in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 3 and following, 2 Corinthians 13. Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For He, that is Jesus, and this is the key thing, Jesus Himself was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in Him. But in dealing with you, we will live with Him by the power of God. See, that's the key. He's modeling himself after the Lord Jesus. Of course, Paul, Paul had been attacked for his weak appearance. Back in chapter 10 of 2 Corinthians, we read, For they say, verse 10, His letters are weighty and strong, but His bodily presence is weak, and His speech is of no account. But you know what, Paul? He responded with that cool comeback. I mean, it's the only time when Paul is cool. In 2 Corinthians 10, 11, he said, Let each person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. That's his comeback. Laconic. He backs up everything he says. What he says when absent, he does when present. He knew his authority. He knew what he was about. Now, near the end, in his farewell to the Ephesian elders, near the end of his quest, the end of his life, he could say in Acts 20, 20, I did not shrink back from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both the Jews and the Greeks of repentance toward God, and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, there was no cowardice with this guy. He's weak. He felt weak. But God had made him strong, and God had given him courage. There was no cowardice, no shrinking back, no, oh, I'm just going to skip over that passage because it's difficult. No, I'm going to turn the volume down on that hard truth because I don't want people to not like me. No shrinking back. No, no keeping the sword in the sheath. He threw the sheath away and he fought the spiritual fight with the sword of the Lord. And that was his great quest and mission. And so he could write to the Colossians from prison at the end of his life saying, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of His body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the Word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to His saints. That's what He was there. Here it is. I want to make it fully known. That's what I'm here for. That's my quest to bear the sword and to bring it to people. And then he concluded saying, Him, that is Jesus Christ, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all His energy that He powerfully works within me. Do you see God was making him strong, and he toiled with it. He's a weak man, but he toiled to get the word out because it had power. Paul, God's sword bearer, is the supreme example 
of the weak man made strong. Only God could make him strong, but he made him strong indeed. And that is then the kind of hero I exhort us all to emulate, dear brothers. Now, I just want to make just a couple of quick applications as we close. Just a couple of quick tips to finish off. Just some more practical thoughts, and then I'm going to end. The first practical application I would suggest for each one of you, and I don't mean to be self-serving, is you need to come to our conference. So that's the advertisement. You say, oh, well, why? Is it just you know, one more conference? No, it's actually about the inner warfare. It's about habits of grace. It's about then working what I would call this, this tactical training for manly spiritual strength. The word, prayer, fellowship, in a hectic world. So you need it. You need that discipline. You need that training. You need those habits. These are more than atomic habits, as the book says. These are cosmic habits. These are powerful habits. So that's the first thing. Secondly, I've got four. Secondly, godly manhood. It doesn't require getting swole at the gym, though that can be a good thing. It does require a killer instinct, though. You know, you know, you know the Owen quote, John Owen? You saw it on the t-shirt now. Be killing sin or it'll, it'll be killing you. Like, you have to live that. You have to have a killer instinct toward your sin. If you are just kind of, oh, well, I can live in coexistence with my sin, you are not going to be God's sword bearer like Paul. Third, you need to wield the sword of the Spirit. If you're not a Bible man, you need to become Bible men. And I would say even if you think you're a Bible man, you ain't nothing. I'm nothing. We are such small men when it comes to our knowledge of the Bible compared to other generations. We just don't know the Bible. Know the content of the Bible. Know its doctrine. Know its history. Know its metaphors. Know its ways of looking at the world. We need Bible men with a true Protestant spirit in these dark days. Don't get caught up in the Catholic thinking that, oh, the, the key is the institutional organization of the church. No, no. We believe in the Bible. The Bible's where the power is, so we need to know it. Wield the sword of the Spirit. And fourthly, it's very simple, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you. He is your oath, Lord. He is the gift giver. You owe your allegiance to Him. Live for Him. And even if you feel weak, He will make you strong. Let's pray together. Almighty God, do a deeper work in our lives beyond maybe even the familiarity of our knowledge of the life of Paul. Lord, help us to own up to how weak we feel, but to recognize you're able to make us strong, very, very strong. Make us strong, Lord, each one of us, for your own glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Cameron.